Well, I wanted to start with sharing one of my favorite stories from scripture. The story of the bleeding woman um, holds a very special place in my heart. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar, it's a story of a woman who has a condition for 12 years that causes her to bleed nonstop, um, which in that context means she was unclean. And in that culture meant uh, she was not able to participate socially or in religious practices, which meant she was in complete isolation. Not only that, she spent years and everything she had um, to find a cure, but instead got worse. Um, so in a, in, a, in a moment where um, she heard that Jesus was in town, she took a risk and reached out and grabbed the hem of his cloak um, and was healed. But not only that, um, Jesus created a space for her uh, to share her story, to come forward and share her story. Um, and what really touches me about this story is that when no one else saw her, Jesus did. Like many of us, I was raised in the church and taught that my life should look a certain way, that Jesus loved me. But this love came with a long list of stipulations. As long as I went to church, as long as I read my Bible, as long as I was not gay. I knew from a very young age that I was different, and I quickly understood that this was a secret that I would carry to my grave, um, that I could tell no one. And everything around me, including my church family, told me that as long as I was still gay, there was no way that God could love or accept me. And so I did what any seven-year-old would do. I prayed. I prayed the gay away. I prayed diligently, sincerely, for years and years. And desperate unanswered prayers turned to bitter tears, and finally, turning my back on the God I felt has turned his back on me. To me, God had become cruel and distant, and I wanted nothing to do with him. My first year of college, I entered into a secret long-distance relationship with another woman, and honestly, it was great, until it wasn't. Um, I had tried to leave this relationship many times when things turned sour, um, and every time I brought up breaking up with this person, she threatened to end her life. And so I found myself trapped um, in a vicious web that I had got myself into, and at that point, I didn't know who I could even share with. I was so ashamed. I felt um, like there was no way out. And I can't tell you why, um, but I found myself in the back of a college ministry meeting one night, and the speaker was talking. And honestly, I don't remember anything the speaker said, because <laughs> I really wasn't paying attention. Um, but as the speaker was wrapping up, he said, everyone is in cages, and the only key to open the door to those cages are in the shape of Jesus Christ. Ha! <laughs> That's a pretty metaphor for the gospel. At this point, I was pretty jaded and cynical, and honestly, I heard every way you could spin the gospel, until the second thing he said caught my attention. And he said, but there are some of you who the door has already been opened, and you're afraid to leave. And to this day, I'll never forget that feeling where the room faded away, and it felt like a spotlight was shining on me. And those words were meant for me. And I remember tears streaming down my face and a peace that I could not explain, a peace that told me that it was okay to leave and that everything would be all right. 
I remember rushing back to my dorm and ending things with my um, long-distance girlfriend despite her still threatening to end her life. And still that peace did not leave me. I remember being confused. I remember being in awe. I remember thinking, this is not who I thought God was. This is totally different. Um, And that's when I acknowledged for the first time that growing up in the church, I knew a lot about God, but I didn't actually know God. And so I was hungry to know this God who felt so different from the image I'd built up over the years. And so I threw myself into everything that this college ministry offered, all their Bible studies, all their large groups. And after a month, um, the same speaker was talking again, and he was sharing about how Jesus offered freedom from secrets. And at this point, again, nobody actually knew what had happened for me. Um, And, you know, he was talking about confessing and sharing with God. But it was the second thing, always the second thing for some reason, that caught my attention. And he said, it's also biblical for us to share with others. And for some reason, that was news to me. (laughs) Um, I remember thinking, really? Okay. Okay. And I remember very clearly a girl's name popped into my head. It was a girl that I'd seen in Bible study, briefly, barely knew her name, she barely knew me, but for some reason there was a tugging at my heart saying that I should talk to this girl. And so I asked if we could talk outside, and I remember thinking, all right, I'm going to tell this girl I was in an unhealthy relationship. Yeah, that's good. And I remember God saying, no, 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 that's not what you're going to share. And I remember my whole body tensing, I was shaking, and there was this whole internal turmoil. I don't know what this girl was thinking as I was walking, but I remember saying, God, what do you mean? What are you you talking about? What do you want me to share? And he said, you're going to share with her something you've never shared with anyone before. You're going to share with her how you've wrestled with your sexuality since you were young. And I remember thinking, no, God, no, she can't know. She's going to tell me I'm going to hell. She's going to tell me I can't ever come back. Don't you want me to be a part of a Christian community? Isn't this what you wanted for me? I wrestled with God for what felt like a really long time until that peace again came upon me, that peace that I still cannot explain other than it was from God. And I knew that no matter what happened, I was going to be okay. I remember it took a long time for me to even get those words out. Um, I remember tears were pouring down my face. I remember flinching and tensing at what I was sure to be a really cruel response. That I will say that her response changed everything for me. She looked me in the eye, tears in her own, and said, I love you, Denise, and I don't see you any differently. Words that my soul had longed to hear. Like the bleeding woman, I spent years and what felt like I had given everything I had, desperate to be healed, but was only met with years of disappointment. I had felt alone, unseen, rejected and barred from being loved by people and by God. But in his kindness, Jesus had opened a door for me to be restored and to be seen. Another incredible part of this story of the bleeding woman is that it ends with Jesus calling her daughter. He makes her an example of faith and blesses her and says to go in peace. When no one saw me, Jesus did.
Absolutely beautiful, Denise. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, uh, for sharing in this space where our community gets to share their story and to be welcomed in that amazing way. It's really beautiful. It's really touching. We've been in a series entitled uh, The Fruits of the Spirit. We are now at The Fruit of the Spirit entitled Goodness. Uh, In the new uh, translation of the Revised Standard Version, it's translated generosity, which is interesting. So I'm gonna try to touch a little bit on that. Um, Collaboration is a really important value, and I really appreciate when there's various scholars uh, and insights and uh, wisdom from different perspectives. And Pastor Mark, I think, gave me a really wonderful, I mean, he gave me the entire sermon from Spaceballs. (laughs) Evil will triumph always because good is dumb. We've come now to the time in our service for communion. We'll have uh, time. Thank you so much for For those of you who have been with us for some period of time and have heard me share um, probably far too academically some thoughts, insights, and perspectives from uh, ancient philosophy, I'm going to do the same. So some of what I share might be familiar to some of you. I'm gonna try to weave it in a way that I think is unique to this particular topic, to goodness. And for those of you who are brand new, don't worry. We don't always get this academic. I try to tell people like, so tell, tell me what Spark is like. And I tell people all the time, you cannot know what Spark is like by showing up on one, two, or three Sundays. You have to be here for like six months. You need a lot of exposure because you get a lot of diversity. So just please be reminded of that. I don't want to overqualify that, but I do want to say that, that that's a really critical, important part of our community. So what I'm going to share with you is going to be profoundly philosophical. I'm going to do my best to just walk us very gently through what I think is really, really important stuff that we don't even know is operating in our theology and in the way in which we conceive Jesus and the Bible and heaven and hell and all these kinds of things. And it's really important for us to know what's operating so that we can know it, be liberated by it, and embrace what we are hoping is a more true expression of the long biblical tradition that we are a part of. So we're gonna go from Plato to the good place. We're gonna journey a little bit through that in asking the question of goodness because honestly, the question of what is good has been around for a very long time. And I don't at all uh, have the arrogance to suggest that I'm going to give you a definition of what is good that will satisfy 3,000 years of debate and discussion. So what we're gonna try to do is pull back the veil of how we see goodness operating in a variety of different ways in our theologies, in our practice, and many of you have come from Christian expressions that hopefully this will sound incredibly familiar and be very helpful for you for why Christian tradition has taken on the kind of teaching that it has. But we're gonna have to slog through a little bit of philosophy. Are you okay with that? Will you go with me with that? 
The word that is used in the New Testament for the word goodness there is the word agathos. Everybody say agathos. agathos. And you can see this word used in a variety of contemporary usages. There's some good Christian schools named agathos. There's, of course, companies and technology companies that are named agathos to mean good. We are the good, you know, we're the good science company as opposed to the really bad and terrible one. So the question, of course, throughout philosophical history is what exactly is goodness? Is goodness a character trait? It is something about who you are. For example, this quote here, be so good that they can't ignore you. I have no idea who said that, by the way. I guess it doesn't matter. Um, no, I'm just kidding. It's uh, Steve Martin, or was it actually uh, Cal Newport? I don't know exactly who it was. Anyway, somebody, we can just ignore those. It doesn't matter. What's most important is the quote. The quote is most important, not the who. Nobody's getting that oh, I thought that was really funny. I thought that was, when I was writing that, I thought that was hilarious to me, and none of you are picking up on, all right, never mind. This is why I'm not a comedian. So um, all, the, all the good ones are a little crazy. Is it a character trait? Is it something about who you are? Question number two, is goodness a description? It's actually not the thing, but it's a descriptor of a thing. For example, KFC. So good. Um, the other things that are really good, I follow this uh, Twitter profile, Introvert Problems. Uh, for example, and I use this on a regular basis for therapy. So for example, me overthinking how I said here during attendance. Uh, call me antisocial, but please don't call me. Uh, social vegan, I avoid meat, M-E-E-T. Um, when someone asks, but this ha all this stuff has, happens to me. When someone asks you, what's wrong? But nothing's actually wrong. That's just normally how your face looks. Yeah. And then, of course, this is one of my uh, favorites. When, when the stranger that started talking to you finally leaves, inner peace. Inner peace. And then uh, this one popped up, which is totally, yeah, exactly. What I do at parties, uh, talk, uh, eat, and then the red is think about whether or not it's okay to leave yet. I had one problem with this particular meme. What am I doing at a party? <laughs> like, I wouldn't even be at a party. When I, when I look at these things, they resonate with uh, me. So these memes are like, they're so, oh, that's so good. Is it a descriptor of a thing? Now, you could apply this to food, to memes, to all sorts of different types of things. Is goodness a description? Question number three, is goodness a feeling or an experience? <laughs> Everybody, give it up for Hannah, who's running our audio. Is it something that you actually feel? This would be in the realm of phenomenology. This would be in the realm of emotion. Is it something, oh yeah, that's, I want to feel good about myself, about the world, and all these kind of things. And then, of course, one of the most controversial and debated and discussed areas is goodness, a moral or ethic, which takes us, of course, to the Netflix hit show, The Good Place, which includes a lot of moral debates and discussions about what is good and what is right. For example... Right. So you've decided to help me. I don't know. There's a thousand questions. Is there a moral imperative to help you? Do I have a greater obligation to my community? Are you taking someone else's spot? Someone who deserves to be here? Ooh, on and, and, and Chidi's exactly right. There are a thousand different questions as to what is good and what is right. And so we debate this all the time. And of course, the creator of the show has written a wonderful book, How to Be Perfect, the correct answer to every moral question in which you can read the book and then finally know what is good and what is right and what is true. Uh, it's actually a very fantastic read. He's read a, a lot of these philosophers and really uh, put it into an accessible format for those of us. So 
These are some of the different categories of what goodness is. And the question is, is it a character trait? And I'm going to propose to you the answer is, yeah, it is a character. There are some people that are good and some people that they aren't so good, although we try not to say that out loud. But if we're going to be really honest, there are some people that just are not good. Oh, I said that. Uh, is it a description? Yes. It is a qualifier, an adjective that you use to describe other things. Is it a feeling or an experience? Yes. It's that moment of bliss. It's that moment of, oh, I just am, I'm in my element and I feel good. I, all, the, all the stars are aligned. And is it a moral or an ethic? And the answer is yes. It is all of those things. Again, what I'm going to say is I'm not going to give you a definition. It is goodness or the idea of goodness, the idea of agathos is such a wide span, and depending upon what particular passage of the Bible that you're reading, both in the Old and the New Testaments, you will come across different nuances of these different particular patterns and characteristics. Because goodness spans all of these kinds of things. What I'd like to do, actually, is the question of, so what did the ancients think about that goodness, and how did that influence the way in which we even think about all those characteristics? Because what's happening beneath the surface or what's, what's encapsulating the way in which we think about goodness is actually incredibly pernicious and unconscious. And you didn't even know that this guy is in your brain, but he is. And I'd like to show you a little bit of how he's in your brain and how that's affected the way in which you've thought about goodness and a lot of other things and hopefully tease that out to try to get to some better understandings. Um, A.A. Long, in this particular uh, document, in this uh, lecture series, Themes in Plato, Aristotle, Hellenistic Philosophy, talks about how Plato was the one to talk about the form or the idea of a thing being more true than the actual thing. The classic example is, this is a chair. But this chair is actually not the real chair. The real chair is the idea of a chair. Why? Because if I took the chair, burned it, uh, disintegrated it, threw it away, or it didn't exist, I would still have the idea of a chair. And so Plato was one of the first to uh, promote the idea that the idea, the form, is more real than the actual thing. Here's one of the quotes from this paper. Plato calls the metaphysical forms of the Republic and elsewhere divine. They are emphatically not persons, but perfect exemplars of such qualities as justice and beauty. And they are headed by one very special form, the form of the good. Now, notice this is really critical. That idea is what is divine. And the idea of the chair is actually more perfect. And it is the good. The chair, I mean, this is a nice chair. These are nice chairs. But the idea of the chair, perfect, beautiful, the good. The imagery of low and high, up, down and up, is central to the dialogue's most radical political proposal that the goodness essential to philosophical rule, and I love this line, requires a mental ascent from the muddle and vicissitudes of ordinary life to the understanding and modeling of supra-sensible supra or ideal goodness. I love that line, the muddle and vicissitudes of ordinary life, because that's where you and I live. We live in the muddle and vicissitudes the everyday. But what he is suggesting is that in order to get to the goodness, you have to rise above it. 
This pedantic, pedestrian, everyday life that we live, you have to rise above it. You have to ascend to something higher in that. And one of the grammatical ways in which the Greeks did that is to not talk about good as an adjective, but to talk about good as the thing. Jeremy Lent in his book, The Patterning Instinct, writes this, the Greek passion for generalizing was embedded within the very structure of the language. The Greeks were the first to use the definite article as a significant part of their grammar. For example, every language might have an adjective, such as good, to describe things. The Greek innovation was to arrive at a concept of the good as an abstract generalization of all good things. The definite article posits the idea that the good exists independently. This forms the linguistic basis for what one scholar has called the birth of the very idea of abstraction. The idea that the definite article, the good, takes something that you and I might sense or feel or experience in everyday life and elevates it above and beyond us into a different realm, and then we have to strive to get up there, starts with Plato. Now, you might already be lost at a certain particular point. Please hang with me. This is really critical for what happened to the concepts that developed into our Western civilization. This idea of the good, the abstract, the idea and the form that is higher and better and more perfect than the muddle and vicissitudes of everyday life, got captivated by other philosophers and then later on by theologians. Plotinus, later on, uh, about 200, 300 years after Plato, Plotinus always insisted that the one or the good is beyond the reach of thought or language. And then 400 years later, a gentleman by the name of Clement of Alexandria, after Jesus, Christianity is starting to spread into the world, recognized that what the Greeks had given us and the place in which Christianity was formed was really the way and preparation for Jesus. God had given philosophy to the Greeks as a preparation which paved the way towards perfection in Christ. Christianity emerges about 400, 500 years after Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates and the rest of the uh, development of Hellenistic philosophy. And they go, wait a second. Jesus shows up, we, we know about Jesus, we have this amazing experience, transformation, resurrection, the world is upended, and then it starts to go into this world where all of these philosophic Hellenistic ideas, and they go, oh, I see what God was doing. All that stuff that Plato was talking about, all that stuff that Aristotle was talking about, that was just setting the, the framework, setting the groundwork. It was getting us ready for this Jesus person to come up. And so what they began to do is say, oh, Forms, that's Jesus. Logic, that's Jesus. Spirit, that's Jesus. No, that's spirit. Uh, so they would begin to meld all of these together and the Hellenistic Greek philosophical ideas began to get intermarried with Christian theology very, very early on. Richard Tarnas, in his brilliant book, The Passion of the Western Mind, writes this, the educated class of Christians rapidly saw the need for integrating the philosophical traditions with their religious faith. Yet, this was considered no marriage of convenience. For the spiritually resonant Platonic philosophy not only harmonized with, catch this, it also elaborated and intellectually enhanced the Christian conceptions derived from the revelations of the New Testament. I cannot overstate how important this is. 
as soon as Christianity began to move into this world, Hellenistic philosophy, Greek philosophy began to elaborate and enhance what the early followers of Jesus were teaching. And the earliest fathers, what we call the fathers of the church, grabbed onto that and said, that is good. Augustine, in a document actually entitled On the Nature of Good, writes, opens up his line, uh, his document, and says, the highest good, sounds exactly like Plato, that uh, than which there is no higher is God, and consequently he is unchangeable good, hence truly eternal and truly immortal. All other good things are only for him, not of him. Very early on, the idea of the good form, the idea being perfect, immutable, the thing to which we strive, above the muddle and vicissitudes of everyday life, became instantiated in this early Christian idea and started to manifest itself in things that you will not find in your Bible. How many of you have been taught that God is omnipotent, God is omniscient, God is omnipresent? How many of you have heard these terms before? Find them in your biblical tradition. You won't. Why? Because they come from the Greeks. And the early Christians thought, oh, all that stuff that the Greeks were doing, that's exactly what Jesus is for, or Jesus is getting ready to go into that world. To this, we add the phrase in our modern conception, omnibenevolent, which means all good. And so we strive to be that ideal. This is incredibly important. Now, how does this manifest itself in Christian theology? One of the first ways and most pre uh, predominant ways it does is through the idea of heaven and earth. We have a concept in Genesis chapter one throughout the rest of the Psalms. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we know that we have these two different realms and they are there at the very beginning, and then it kind of shifts to, and the earth was formless and empty, and, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the entire rest of the narrative begins to move to focus on the earth. Animals, sun, moon, stars, the seas, the dry land, the seed-bearing plants. There's a huge focus that what happens here on earth is really important. But if you're moving that Genesis story into a Greek philosophy, molding, melding them together so that they are enhanced and changed, well then, earth isn't as important as what? Heaven actually becomes the more important realm. And so what begins to happen very early on is that heaven becomes the ultimate destination in Christianity, and therefore, the soul is the most important or the most true thing about us. Not our physical bodies, not the regular part of who we are, our everyday experiences, but your soul. That's what is most important. And then this manifests itself into various different ways in the early church and still manifests itself today. The spirit part is the good stuff, but the flesh, that's the bad stuff. Don't do anything fleshly, because fleshly is bad, but spirit is good. In his book, The Cave and the Light, Arthur Herman writes this, another brilliant um, exposition of all of this. It is striking how much Plato's vision resembles later Christian accounts of heaven and hell, nor is it entirely coincidental. 
So if you've ever grown up with a conception of heaven and hell, and heaven being the most important thing, somebody's soul being saved is the most important thing. If you've ever grown up in a Christian tradition like that, it's amazing how much it resembles early Hellenistic Greek Platonic philosophy, and it's no coincidence, because that's what happened within the first 200 years. And if you try to go back then to your Bible and read, your brain's all screwed up because you've been conditioned by this way of thinking. This has manifested itself. Many of you know some of these terms. Gnosticism and Calvinism. Gnosticism being like the first wave of mind, spirit, soul being most important. Flesh, body, boo, evil. All the things that you do with your body are bad. And then Calvinism is kind of a more modern expression of this, where they have this idea of total depravity. The idea is that you're born into sin because what's most important is your soul. So your body and the fact that you come into this world means that you're tainted with this original sin and that's a whole other thing that begins to develop. Many of you have been taught this. Like if you've, uh, Danielle has talked about the gospel hand. Like this is, this is how you share the good news with people. You start with, you are a sinner. Boom. That, like, that's the starting point. That's the starting point? No, not God created or God is loved. You are a sinner. This is where we start. Where does that come from? Why is it that that becomes the elevated idea? We've been subtly, subconsciously influenced by a different philosophy, not the biblical one. This is really critical. Uh, in a previous life, I was the spiritual life director of the King's Academy down in, in Sunnyvale. We would take these little trips, and we would do these um, mission trips where we'd start to build homes for the people down in Mexico. This is a very common practice, uh, because everybody's dream house is a house built by ninth graders. Uh, that's why you do such a thing. Anyway, um, there's, a, there's a lot to discuss here, but nonetheless, the heart, the, the fundamental idea of it is to do something good. Poverty is bad. We should do something about the poverty and the injustice in this world. And part of doing it with ninth graders is because you want to start to instill within them this idea that justice is really important and good. In addition to building of the houses, they also did camps. And man, these were amazingly beautiful where the kids would play soccer camp, they would do Bible clubs, they would do all these kinds of things. Now, I was there as part of the team and I also got to play in the band and I'll do all sorts of kind of stuff. And one person there, I won't say who it was obviously, one person there literally folded his arms watching all the kids do this stuff. And he said out loud, this is all just filthy rags, none of it matters. None of it matters? No. Because he, and, and when I started talking, it's like, why would you say to It's like, what matters is the soul. What matters is whether or not they're going to heaven or not. This stuff doesn't matter. I was stunned. He's quoting a passage, by the way, from Isaiah 64. Out of context, mind you. But I just, this is how this manifests. You're telling me that helping people in poverty, helping people from injustice, uh, trying to make the world right is irrelevant to your Christian practice? And essentially, he said yes. I mean, this was several years ago, so I didn't have all that same language, but that was essentially the idea. And I was so like blown away, and after I started studying kind of this history, I'm like, oh, you're not getting that from Christianity. You're, you're barely getting that from Calvin. You're getting that from Plato. 
and you don't even know it because it's just woven into the fabric because the highest ideal is what is ultimately good and to attain to that highest ideal is what we are supposed to be doing as Christians. All of this muddle of the vicissitude, I, I love that phrase, and this is, doesn't matter, but that's what is true. Okay, this manifests itself in all sorts of aspects of our world. Idealism, ultimate reality, ultimate truth, higher perfection, unity, uniformity. These kinds of ideas actually manifest themselves into our social and political sphere. How many of you know dogmatism, fundamentalism, totalitarianism, racism, and elitism? These actually come from the same groundwork. These ideas are to say there is a higher, ultimate, perfect good to which we must get to. That's it. And if you do not fit into that category, you are lesser, weak, bad, evil, the enemy, whatever you want to call it. So this has manifested itself into our world as well. Question, is that our faith biblical heritage? After God lovingly spoke all things into existence, God looked out over all that God had made, the animals, the creatures, the humans, man, woman, the land, the fruit bearing trees, the animals of the sky, the fish of the sea. He looked at it all and said it was very good. And when you follow the trajectory of what a biblical conception or what our faith tradition has inherited, there's no doubt aspects of these kinds of things poking their way in at times. You'll see this a little bit in the New Testament. But what I would like to propose to you, my friends, is that that has not been, nor should it be, the fundamental philosophical view of the narrative that we have inherited. Because the narrative that we have inherited says that everything down here, not just up there, everything down here, is really, really good. Because God has created it, spoke it into being, put it into its right place. And so we're gonna replace all of those ideas with the God of Genesis that pulls that thread through all the way to the very end, even to the book of Revelation, where heaven and earth are joined together as one. Why? because there is no platonic separation of what is good up there and what is bad is down here. At the very end of everything, it all comes together and it is all, every single part of it, very good. So, if we can recognize that we have been mentally and philosophically hijacked by Plato, Maybe we can think and conceive of a different way of approaching all of those different aspects of goodness. So when we read passages like Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's, the earth is the Lord's, and all that is in it, the world and all those who live in it, for he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Those are very specific aspects of what is good. And we, as human beings, are charged to take care of what is good, to tend to it, to protect it, to serve it, to flourish with it. Why? Because it's very good. 
not some abstract generalization. You don't escape this world to get there. When we read in Psalm 118.1, oh, give thanks to the Lord because good, which is an amazingly beautiful, ambiguous statement because your translations will say because God is good or because it is good to give thanks. We don't know. It just says because good. So it's like all of those things in one. God's steadfast love endures forever. There's actual language throughout the Psalms. So rather than those ancient philosophers saying, oh, you can't even put language to this. No, we can We can say things about love, steadfastness, faithfulness, because the language even that we use is good. And there's even very specific ideas. Uh, Micah 6.8, the famous passage, he has told you, O mortal, what is good? What is good? Not up there. Not up there. What is good? Justice. Kindness, what Pastor Omer talked about last week. Humility. These are all things that we do down here. Justice is the work that we do to put the world right together. Kindness is how we relate to one another. Humbly is how we hold our opinions of ourselves and our posture with the world and with God. Those are not things that you wait to get up there from. Those are not the things that you escape from. Those are also not perfect or highest goods. Those are things that you work at every single day for the rest of your life to do. And then in passages like Matthew chapter 25, well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. I've been entrusted with good things and I was trustworthy with those things so I will get more of those things. Yeah, not the above the muddle and vicissitudes of ordinary life. The things that you have been entrusted with now are good. How you treat them matters. And if you treat them well, and if you are trustworthy, you'll get more of that. Not like, okay, you've done good. Now you get, pull the escape hatch. We're out of here. No. A different conception of this idea is that everything that we do down here is so good. Every conversation that you have Every moment you stop and smell the flowers, every time you take in a sunset, every conversation you have with your child or husband or wife, girlfriend or boyfriend, every meal that you have, and you start to see that conceiving of this particular way of the entire creation being good can actually radically transform how you live into this creation. If you think that this is all temporary and it's just going to burn and what's most important is getting up there, then hey, it really doesn't matter what we do down here. But if you start to see it all, every single aspect of it as very good, then you will embrace it, live it, care for it, love it, serve it. Which made me think, did the translators of the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition 2022 (laughs) use the word generosity because of this? Because if this is really good, how much more do you want to give? How much more do you realize that this goodness needs to be shared? How much more do you recognize that whatever life, and we just sang about it, I love what Junior, you know, when he brings these songs, like there's going to be these times when things don't work out and there's injustice, there's all this pain, but 
the fundamental base note, the foundation of it all is that, but this is really good, which is why we work at it and are generous towards it. So we embrace every single aspect of life that we have, every single moment, every connection, every gift that we have. Because while goodness can be a character trait, an adjective, a feeling, or a moral, whatever category we might think of goodness, every single one of those categories is part of this beautiful created order. And we want to embrace as much of it as we can. We want to be generous with it as we can because it's so good. And God looks out upon all that God has made, including you, and says, so good, so good. That is what you are, you are so good. And I hope, I hope, like Denise was sharing earlier, that every single person in your community recognizes just how good you are. Just how beautiful and wonderful and how life-giving it can be to live into this world with that level of goodness. And next time you hear Christian theology that suggests, eh, it's all gonna burn anyway, you just say, shut up, Plato. <laughs> I'm just kidding, don't say that, that's very, that's very unkind. <laughs> but at least you can recognize from where it comes. Because if you take a look at the long trajectory of our biblical faith, history, and narrative, it all comes back to here. Heaven comes down here. It's rejoined again, it's remade new again. And that vision of that future, of the, all the goodness coming together into this place is a call for every single one of us to work towards that end now. If that's what's coming, I wanna be a part of it now. So I'm going to embrace the goodness of this world and engage with it fully and completely here and now. So my friends, I haven't made a definition of what is good, but I hope that we have shifted your mind and shifted your posture. And then when we go to our next thing, we celebrate its amazing goodness. And next time you look in the mirror, or next time you gather with your community, and next time you take communion, next time you do any of these little things, every time you muddle through the vicissitudes of life, sorry, that'll be my last one. Every time you muddle through the vicissitudes of life, you will recognize and embrace every single aspect of it as good which is what we do every single week here. It is to recognize that this is not just a ritual that you mindlessly go through. It is to remind you once again that who and what Jesus is and did and is currently to this day so good and present. And we are reminded of that every time we come together. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My friends, every single one of you are welcome to this table fully and completely for who you are to embrace the goodness of our God, this community, and this amazing journey that we are on.
Please come as we sing.